This is Archive Atlanta, episode 149, Amusement Parks. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So this week, I'm covering the story of some of Atlanta's lesser-known amusement parks. I've covered some of these in previous episodes, like Ponce de Leon Park in the Ponce City Market episode, and in entire episode 73, which was all about African-American parks, many of those also functioned as amusement park spaces. And there are some that will have their own episodes in the future, like Lakewood Park and Speedway. What I'm trying to say here is that there is no perfect list. I've probably missed some. If I've missed some, maybe I'll talk about them in the future. But I'm excited to shed some light on this quirky little part of history, starting back before Atlanta was even Atlanta to places maybe you remember or your moms or grandmas. We'll start with Walton Springs, considered the first amusement park in Atlanta in operation in the 1840s. It was named for owner and city councilman Anderson Walton, and its location described as on the sloping ground between the Spring and Petrie Street, and that spring was Walton Spring. In Akela's book, The Culinary History of Atlanta, she talks about this place in detail, and that's because it's connected to Antonio Macchino, who was described as, quote, a diminutive specimen of the French nationality, end quote, and known locally as Little Tony. He operated the first Atlanta restaurant, and at some point then moved on to establish a small confectionery and knick-knack establishment where he sold soda water, ice cream, cakes, fruits, in kind of like a little wagon yard on this slope that I just mentioned. And his stand became well-known throughout the city. And so Tony went on to build what he called Makino's Wheel, essentially a very crude Ferris wheel made of wood. There was dry good boxes that you could fit two people in that were suspended from the wheel, and it was turned by several enslaved men. So this is really fascinating because it predates the formal invention of the Ferris wheel by 40 years. There was also a wheel erected at the 1849 New York State Fair. So I don't know. I mean, this is not my area of expertise. I don't know if we'll ever really know who invented this idea, you know, where this idea came from. But we had one here in Atlanta. And while I have a severe fear of heights, so I don't go on Ferris wheels, I do love that the city of Atlanta has one downtown and it sort of honors this earliest history, whether they know it does or not. The popularity of Walton Springs dies down because in 1868, there's a Constitution article about he, how C.S. Reeves had planned to revitalize this old Walton Springs and erect a first-class bathhouse, beer saloon, confectionery, and that everything would be, quote-unquote, neat as a pin, end quote. In the late 1880s, privately owned amusement parks boomed all over the country, usually out in the country, and they were a great moneymaker for early streetcar companies. But we also have to remember that the cities these days, they're dusty, they're dirty, they're muddy, they're mostly unsanitary, not all of the roads are paved, everything is coal-powered, and then I talked about this in the epidemics episode, but you have, you know, people dying of what are now treatable disease high infant mortality rate. And so people really needed this place to get away. And the draw was always, you know, fresh air, nature, clean water, and then amusement rides were added to add to that escape. On the other side, these were also bastions of whiteness. In the 1890s, specifically, African-American migration into Atlanta was an all-time high. And so with the races mixing and mingling in the tight spaces of the streets and the trolleys, we see this rise of Jim Crow laws, of course, but also the creation of amusement parks that are relegated to white only, and again, further away from the city. 
Grant Park's White City began its life in 1887 under a different name, and that was Little Switzerland. On land owned by C.L. Chosewood, German landscape designer Julius Hartmann leased it, and he opened a very simple nature resort with fruit trees and an open platform surrounded by flowers. In 1889, the land was sold to Philip Maltrie, and he constructed Lake Lamont, a bowling alley, and a dining hall. There was issues with public drunkenness here, all the way back to when Hartman owned it, and it continued into Philip's reign. So while the resort was private and did not store or sell liquor of any kind, they had a very hard time stopping Atlantans from bringing it in with them. So by 1902, it's the height of Georgia's prohibition, and the smallest still bust on record was found in the woods of Little Switzerland. So it would be in and out of legal cases um, throughout its existence, all related to public drinking. And in 1906, James L. Glass spends $100,000 to purchase the land, improve the site, and his goal is to create an amusement park that would rival Ponce de Leon Park. This is about the same time that that's going up. In the summer of 1907, he opened White City to a crowd of 15 to 20,000 people. Named for the famous 1893 exposition in Chicago, many parks around the country were also called White City, so it wasn't a novel idea. Over the next few years, it opened up a boxball alley, a 1,600-seat vaudeville theater, Ferris wheel, merry-go-round, toboggan slide, figure eight. There was also an aerial swing that thrilled those dangling over the lake. One of the biggest attractions was Madame Zenda, who was a described as a psychological phenomenon. I'm assuming she was a fortune teller of some kind. The trolley line was extended from Fair Street, which is now Memorial Drive, um, onto Confederate Avenue. Today it's United. But basically, the streetcar would take you to the front gates, like right into the park's entrance. Now, I'm not sure exactly how long White City stayed open. It's a little bit confusing. So there was a lot of baseball games and other events mentioned throughout the 1910s and it's mentioned in the 1920s but more as like a directional point so people are talking about it but they're not talking about actually going there so i kind of question like if there was any actual amusements at that point um today it is long gone but it is actually on the piece of land where parkside elementary is located next up is joyland park So it's really fascinating to me. I really wanted to do an episode all about it. It's also very hard to research, mainly because we're talking about Black history and the Daily World, which is the city's longest running newspaper, Black newspaper, does not have archives really prior to 1930. So while we have the Atlanta Independent, it is not searchable by keyword. I am not yet a lady of leisure, so I cannot sit around and read these papers all day. But, you know, life goals. So all that to say that today I will share like the little bit I know about Joyland Park, um, which was an amusement portion. Do keep in mind that it was later developed into a neighborhood with the same name. So that's where it can get confusing. Joyland opened in the summer of 1921 along South Prior Street with 10,000 people, both white and black, showing up for the opening ceremonies. In attendance that day was the governor and the mayor at the time. And the main event was the competitive drill put on by the Georgia Regiment of the Knights of Pythias. The park was a real source of pride in Atlanta's Black community because it was owned and operated by Black people for Black people only. And the Georgia Railway and Power Company actually set up a trolley line that would take people from Auburn Avenue and Butler, I think that corner, right to the gates of Joyland. 
It was a place to see the circus, among other things. Um, There was an article from June of opening year that talks about how strong winds ripped off the big top of the Billy Lipscomb Sir Show, and a tiger escaped when its cage was hit by a fallen tree. He was, thankfully, later recaptured. The Black Crackers baseball team played there. Um, It was also home to the Elk Quick Step baseball team. And Sandlot baseball is such a huge thing in Atlanta. Hopefully do an episode about it because uh, they would play teams from all other neighborhoods. By 1923, so just a couple years later, the land is then platted into a subdivision also called Joyland Park and advertised as, quote, highest class colored residential section and recreation center, end quote, with clean drinking water and two streetcars. So this is where the history of Joyland turns more into residential neighborhood, um, which goes on for many more decades. So I do hope to get that into an episode one day in the future. Another black amusement park from history is Sunset Park. Now, that name references the lots that were sold by the Adair Company in Vine City around 1912-ish. They were, of course, off Sunset Avenue. And this area, to most people's surprise, began as a white-only suburb. And so while I still have yet to do an episode about it and its kind of demographic change, Sunset Park was exclusively a black amusement park. The first mention that I found for it was in 1926, where the paper calls it recently opened. It had games, a merry-go-round, a Ferris wheel, a roller coaster called the Greyhound, novelty rides, and a ballroom that was later called Sunset Casino. So apparently after a few years, the rides are discarded, but the casino remains in use. So the floor of this casino was wood, and in 1926, it held its first collegiate basketball game, which was between Morris Brown and Howard University. And then it became the place for black collegiate basketball, like games after games after games. This was like most of the 1920s. Um, There was also the 20s was the era of boxing. I talked about that in episode 50, but there were thousands of boxing matches organized and held here until at least the start of the Great Depression. There is some confusion around 1930, 1931, because I continue to see newspaper notices about events and parties, but in May of 1932, there was also a mention that Sunset Park had, you know, quote-unquote, reopened after a year of inactivity. So maybe we'll never quite know what happened there. But in that year of rebirth, they reinstalled the huge roller coaster. And what's hilarious is they go on and on and on about how safe it is now. So I have a feeling that that 1920s roller coaster was pretty much a death trap. It was advertised that the spaces could be used by clubs, churches, local organizations, fraternities, sororities, and the dance hall reopened with Neil Montgomery and the Dixie Serenaders. By 1937, so the height of the Depression, they had the Bell and Powell Circus, which is described as, quote, the only Negro circus in the world, end quote. By the end of the 30s, like I said, it started to be called mostly Sunset Casino instead of Sunset Park. And then in 1947, it received a large facelift. So during this renovation, the Magnolia Ballroom was crowned Home of Happiness. It's under direction by the new manager, Ralph Mays, and everything was touted as being, you know, up to code, everything is new, and they were going to install soft lights for dancing and the bright lights for basketball. Now, the Magnolia 
really remains a part of a lot of people's memories because the building stood until 1978. So while they were vacant in that year, that's the year they burned down. Now, if you don't know the area I'm talking about on Sunset and Magnolia, so near the Herndon Stadium, right in Vine City, on that corner, there is a rectangular piece of land that is has nothing on it. It's just trees. That is where the Sunset Park, Sunset Casino, Magnolia Ballroom, you know, all those three names, that's where it used to be. Last on my list is Funtown Amusement Park, and that brings us to 1961, which is the same year in Atlanta when our schools formally desegregate. There are student sit-ins in downtown. Um, The first black tennis players tried to reserve court space at Bitsy Grant. You know, this is just a couple of the civil rights stories from that time. So it's a little bit of foreshadowing when Funtown opens on May 27th, 1961 as a white-only amusement park. Situated on 20 acres along Stewart Avenue, Across from the Zayer department store, it was also strategically next to the huge Atlanta Bowling Center. So the idea is that families, you know, they come to the amusement park, they can also bowl. There was parking for 2,000 cars, which was really a big deal at that time. There was a wooden merry-go-round. There were mechanical rides, uh, miniature riverboats. There was a small-scale copy of The General, the famous train. There was a ballpark with robot pitchers that would throw balls to you. There was a 38-hole miniature golf course, and there was also a ride that was a simulated trip to the moon. And all was well for about two years until the summer of 1963, when a racially mixed group of about 8 to 10 teenagers attempted to integrate the park. So like I kind of said earlier, this is the height of integration bids in Atlanta. And so this was a very planned thing. Part of the recorded history says like the white teens were dressed um, really poorly, like in rags. And then the black teens were dressed in their Sunday best. And they very purposely, you know, walked up to the ticket window, asked for their entries. And the park immediately shut down all operations for the whole weekend rather than have to integrate. Now, they ended up reopening, I think, days later, or like, I think it was only open on the weekend, so the weekend later, and it would continue to operate for another four years. There's nobody really quite knows whether the park actually had to integrate. There's like one person who said, oh, yeah, I, you know, I saw a black person there later, but I don't think that was true. And then some people believe the park closed, you know, so they didn't have to integrate. But the reason that this park is well known is that um, President Kennedy, before he died, he asked... Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., you know, what age do children in the South start to experience racism? And King responds by telling the story of his daughter, who was five years old, when he had to tell her that she could not go to Funtown because she was not white. And I think that this is even mentioned in his letter from a Birmingham jail. So this is a a lot of people know this for that reason, um, that it was kind of used as a civil rights fight. It closes in 1967. First, they sold all the rides and then they closed the park down for good. So there you have it, the story of some forgotten Atlanta amusement parks. I know there's some more I missed, so you tell me what is your long-gone amusement park story that you remember, or maybe your parents or your grandparents told you about. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review. You can visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. I hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week. 